Welcome to the Online Marketing Rockstars podcast. Um, we have an American guest today on the show, Sean Ellis of growthhackers.com. Is that correct? That is correct. Thanks, Philip. What is growthhackers.com? So growthhackers uh, started initially as kind of a place for myself. You know, I kind of, I wanted a place where I could hang out with other marketers that shared my interest. And uh, I, at the time, didn't really have sites that I thought I could do that at. And so I built it as a community where you share content and discuss content. And over time, it's evolved into some other things. So we do AMAs. It's probably a lot like uh, some of the things that you guys are doing. So AMAs. I, mean, I, and... I think it's, it's, <laughs> a, it's, it's a fascinating place. And, I, and I, I read a lot of articles or stuff that I can yeah. find there. And it's, it's, a, it's a place for the growth hacking community. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we, we have some original content, but it's really a lot more Q&A and just, you know, just, just yeah, engagement and discussions about other people's content. And uh, yeah. It's fun. Is it true that you also came up with the term uh, growth hacking first? Is that like a, yeah, your, it's, your idea? Yeah, it is. It's, uh, <laughs> for better or worse. Some people hate it and some people love it. So, yeah. I, uh, and when did you invent it? I mean, what was the... Uh, yeah, it was, it was a time when I, I, I had basically started, um, started doing these six-month kind of traction roles where I help new companies come to market. I'd, I'd previously spent... 10 years working at two companies long-term and, and I realized I liked the upfront part. So I was working with these companies in the, in the early days uh, and getting like some stock in the company. And so I was really aligned to help them be successful. So I wanted to put somebody into each company to take over when I left. And when I advertised the role as a marketing role, just the people who I was getting were, were kind of more of your traditional textbook type marketers and they really didn't seem to know how you grow an online business. And so I started looking around to how I was approaching it, how Facebook was approaching it, how, you know, some of these really fast growing companies were approaching growth and it just seemed to be different than how a lot of people were defining uh, marketing. And so that's where I said it needs a different name and just came up with a, a different name and, uh, and yeah, it, it took off from there. Um, before we get into how to do growth hacking these days, maybe you can give some context and where do you come from? I mean, how, when did you, how did you start? Are you a developer? Are you a classic marketer? What are you by background and how did your journey into this whole industry start? Yeah. So I started, um, I started just in, in marketing and, uh, actually in the early beginning, I started in sales, which turned out. So I basically, in, I graduated from college in 1994. So a couple of years in sales. And then in 96, I switched to marketing. So literally just at the start of kind of the internet push on things. And it turned out that a, I think a sales background was almost better than a traditional marketing background because in sales, you manage, you manage a funnel. You know, I, I do a hundred phone calls and, and maybe get 10 meetings and those 10 meetings lead to two sales and you're used to kind of really work in the numbers. And so um, when I moved to online marketing, I didn't have a marketing background, but my sales background, I think helped quite a bit. And so, um, yeah, I, I went in and uh, originally I was working for this company called Uproar.com, had invested all my money in it in, in 1995 and uh, and decided that I was going to try to help uh, help 
help this business that I'd invested in. And so they sent me to New York and to, to basically sell advertising and there was almost no people on the product. And so I'm going and to these big Madison Avenue advertising agencies and I, we have maybe a hundred people using the product and they weren't interested. So I complained to the CEO and he said, um, he said, well, why don't you take a shot at trying to grow the business? And I, I kind of never looked back from there. I just, uh, I ended up really liking it and, that site ended up uh, becoming the um, number seven website in the world in terms of total usage time. It was called uproar.com. And what, uh, what did you do at the time to, to push it forward? You know, originally I just, you know, I went out and just bought some uh, kind of search engine advertising. And, um, and it was funny because I spent, spent a lot of money and my CEO said, this is great. It worked. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I think I spent $20,000 because that was the minimum buy that the search engines allowed at that time. And um, I, you know, maybe we, we doubled or tripled our users, but, you know, I did the math and I was like, I just can't see how that advertising will pay for itself. And so I got, uh, got kind of uh, nervous about it, even though he was excited about it. Just, I think part of it is because I invest my own money in it. At least I kind of had the... I had the you rational can't. lens. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't care if I was if I was getting a pat on the back of of praise. I wanted to make sure that um, I was actually keeping the business in, in business. And so um, I, I realized I didn't need to spend twenty thousand dollars to see if something worked or not. So I could spend five hundred dollars and see if it worked. And then if it worked, I could do more. So that was the first thing that I did. Is I figured out how to get very minimal buys across a bunch of different sites, and then. Because we started the company, I, I lived in Budapest, Hungary at the time when the company started. And so I was the only person not in Budapest. They sent me to, the, to, to New York. And uh, so one of our big advantages was uh, low cost development in, in Budapest at the time. Now it's not so cheap, but <laughs> back in the mid 90s, it was, it was a big advantage when we were competing against some of these other game companies. And so it's all about how can we leverage this low cost development. And one of the first things that I did was just convince them that we should, we should have really good tracking. So they built uh, tracking to a level where for every dollar I was spending, uh, I could, I could see exactly how many advertisements we generated across our, across our games. It was, I mean, well, was that cookie based tracking or was that? Uh, no, it was, it was basically, um, we, it was, yeah, it was a UTM parameter that was written then into the database for the for the user, like once they had registered. So we could we could then see how many ads did that user have. So they couldn't play the games without signing up for the games. Okay. Okay. And so, um, you know, it sounds kind of normal today. Everybody does that, but in 1997, um, it was a huge advantage for us to be able to spend money on these little $500 buys get out of them if they weren't generating. And it was, we didn't always know exactly what our return on investment was because it depended how much we were selling the ads for. But I could at least know that a dollar spent here generated twice as much usage time as a dollar spent here. And so I could just shift a lot of that, that money. So that, I think that helped us get good traction in the game space. And then ultimately what really broke us out was we... Um, it was probably like kind of the, our first real growth hacking was we built games that could be embedded on other websites. So sort of the same way that YouTube's strategy a few years later 
we really invented this embeddable widget at the time that uh, they, people would just put a little JavaScript on their site. We got it onto 40,000 websites and uh, including like CNN and like big sports sites. And uh, all of these sites were sending traffic back. So you'd start the gameplay experience on this other on these other sites, and then you would join a game with you know thousands of people on our site and engagement along the way, and okay. that helped us uh, really become the number one game site. But competing against Microsoft, Yahoo, Sony, Sony was the number one advertiser on the entire internet, and we we were able to beat them. Not only were they number one on the internet, they also uh, had all of their television game show formats where they were promoting their online games and our more creative approach uh, helped us eventually pass them and then and then beat them so um, that was that was pretty exciting that was and then then you like along the journey after that you, you, yeah journey so we, went? that that business uh, reached a billion dollar valuation we listed on Nasdaq and then ended up selling it to Uh, Vivendi Universal, same group of guys who started that company then started Log Me In in Budapest. So I had moved back to Budapest. Um, we started Log Me In and then uh, spent the next few years building Log Me In. And uh, today that's about a $5 billion dollar company. And so I ran marketing there from uh, you know, customer zero through through the uh, through the IPO filing. Wow. And then, and then you also... Went to, I mean, a couple of other really big household names, PayPal, Dropbox. Uh, not PayPal, but Dropbox, Eventbrite, uh, Lookout. So, yeah, some other good names. But so basically what I realized after logged me in was that um, the stage that I liked the most and where I thought I could offer the most value was actually in the first year. Um, the problem is, in, at least in Silicon Valley, um, that the... Uh, Stock options take four years to, to, vest. to vest. And so if you're successful, you, it takes four years to get paid for your work. And so um, not very many people get a lot of practice at the stage that matters most where you're kind of figuring out the trajectory of growth in the business. And so I wanted to get a lot of practice at that stage. And because I had two IPOs that I'd already had in my two previous roles, I had the opportunity and kind of leverage to negotiate that I would only stay for six months my stock would all be vested and then I would move on. And so, and yeah. what, what, how did you, how did you help like a Dropbox? What did you do for them? I basically, I started the day or the week that it launched publicly and, um, and basically built it for to the first couple million people. And we did just in that six month period. So you worked directly with the founders and everything? Yeah. So I, every, so there was eight people there when I, when I was there and the, um, You know, basically, our goal going in was to make the culture data-driven, test-driven culture. And, um, and a lot of what I was focused on was just this playbook of what I saw work at, uh, at Log Me In, which was if, if you, like most marketers, just focus on bringing them to the front door and of a website. You know, maybe they do some testing on landing pages, but... Um, It's, it's nearly impossible to build a big business that way, that you need to bring them all the way into experiencing the value of the product. And so basically you need to then uh, – you, first you have to make sure that there is value in the product. If there's no value. It's difficult. Then it's very <laughs> difficult. So that was the first thing that I did even before I joined companies. I would, I would actually take some of the early users on the product, make sure there was value. And then I would start to build – backwards from the customers that love the product and then work my way out to the channel. So when did they first, 
what do they love about the product? What was their first experience where they discovered that? And, and then kind of what, what was the reason they wanted to try it? And so essentially building a path to that great experience in the product and lots of testing to maximize how to get people there. And when I did that at, at each company, that, that was a huge part of accelerating growth. And where did the first customers then come from that just Dropbox? Where did you find them? So did you acquire them? I was, I was fortunate that during the private beta, they had gotten it to where there was a couple hundred thousand people who'd signed up for it during for the, the private beta, and then they just spread it to, to yeah. To so that and was through a they did even before they even before they launched the private beta, they were really creative and good. So I, I think a lot of my a lot of my role with Dropbox was to help the founders understand that marketing isn't com as complicated as most marketers try to make it out to be. That they could be really good at it, and um, and they already had been really good at it. So. They had created a video that went kind of viral about uh, how this was product was going to work and had some pretty funny stuff in it and then had worked to get that video distribution on Dig at the time, kind of the Reddit before Reddit was around and got, got it really popular on Dig. And that got enough people interested who tried the product. And that's kind of a prerequisite for me is it's really hard if no one's tried the product to know if there's any potential for growing it. But what I could see in that early group of users was that they truly loved the product. And so that, that was kind of the starting point of just understanding them and then building the machine around those people to get a lot more people in there. And, and when you say building the machine around those people, what, how do you, what is the machine? I mean, what, what, what so do you do? There was a couple things. So one of the things, one of the challenges that we had at log me in was that, um, when we got to 100 million devices on the product like that, that had the software on there, it was really hard to find a channel that could make an impact, a, a new channel that could make an impact and grow the business faster. So size kind of became our enemy over time, like our growth rate just through math naturally would shrink. So what I was looking, I joined Dropbox six months after I left LogMeIn. And what I was looking for at Dropbox was how can I build a growth engine that uh, that was leveraging the existing users on the product. So when we had a million users, our growth engine would be 10 times more powerful than when we had 100,000 users. And so it, there was already some natural pieces there. So anytime someone shared a file, that was kind of an advertisement for the product, right? Anytime someone invited someone else to a folder, that was even more of an advertisement because it not only introduced them to the product, but it required them to use the product. Yeah, but not, and not only acquired them to use the product, but anytime they added new content to that folder, it, it re-engaged them. They would get a notification that new content has been added to your huh. Dropbox folder. Huh. And so it got this really good uh, retention loop in there. But interestingly, I think the biggest driver of growth went during the six months when I was there was the uh, just pure natural word of mouth. People okay. who... People who love the product and just told their friends about it. And okay, so, but then that, that, that's, I mean, good for them, but really hard to replicate, right? I mean... Well, that's the thing is you can replicate it. Okay, how? That's, that's where I think a lot of marketers fall short is that no one's going to spread the word if they respond to an advertisement, hit a page, and never use the product. And so I think that's the first part is making sure that they actually get in and use the product. And that was my challenge when I was at LogMeIn is originally I approached it the way most marketers approached it, where it's the product team's problem. 
to get them from, you know, now I brought them to the door, got them to sign up. You get them to use the product. The product team just wasn't good at that. So, so, and so, so marketing and the product wasn't connected. And you're saying what it definitely is required yeah. to build a great web product is marketing and product have to be like one unit. Yeah. Word of mouth is based on someone actually having value from the product, ex having a great valuable interaction or experience with the product. And so I think that was, that was what unlocked all the growth that logged me in. Originally, we I could not spend more than $10,000 a month and we were growing pretty slowly and it was because of this inefficient funnel. And so just to show the power of this, I went and showed the data to my CEO and said, 90% of the people who sign up for the product never use it. So there's not going to be any word of mouth if they don't use the product. They're not going to spread the word because they signed up for it. And so they never use that. And there was just a lot of complexity in installing the software, going to a different computer, remote controlling your computer. There was, there was a lot of steps to getting value from the product. But when I showed this to him, he, to his credit, said, this, we need to fix this. We need to make this the most important thing that the product team is doing. And he literally took every single developer and product person and said, they're going to focus on that first customer experience. They're going to focus on... We're going to basically go through every step in that funnel, do lots of testing, lots of uh, research, you know, surveying, find out why are you signing up, not installing the software. And so once we did all of that, we were able to get almost a thousand percent improvement on, on the number of people who used the product. And as soon as we did that, it meant if they, if they didn't use, they weren't going to buy so it meant that our return on investment on the spend went way up, but it also meant that our organic word of mouth went up by 10x. And so with no new creativity on the marketing side, no new channels tested, the same marketing that scaled to 10,000 a month now scaled to a million dollars a month. Um, and so that's, that's really the same process I went through with Dropbox was to take every single person that showed interest and move remove as much friction as possible from the customer acquisition funnel to actually get them to experience the product keep them motivated moving down the funnel and remove friction along the way and and that's how you unlock word of mouth so so it's a misconception that in growth hacking the value is created by knowing like underpriced media values by finding like users for cheap. That's not the, the, the key. The key is to have a product that spreads or the product that is valuable and spreads. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think the key is to understand all of your levers of growth and that customer acquisition, external facing customer acquisition is just one lever, but it's, they're all interdependent. If I can figure out a channel, if I can figure out a referral channel that gets each of my users to bring someone else in, that's really powerful as a customer acquisition lever, lever but it also means that it also means that my paid marketing is going to work twice as well. You know, if each person is telling another person and if I also, and really I think the biggest thing that growth hackers do that's effective. So most growth teams actually come out of the product organization and not the marketing organization, um, which is pretty interesting. And do you have a develop? I mean, can you code? Do you have a developing background? I don't, but that's, that's where like I built my second hire, at, even at log me in was a, uh, was a Engineer. developer on my team. Uh -huh. So it's, it's really more like a 
Ocean's Eleven type kind of <laughs> team of skills that are coming together, designers, marketers, copywriters, developers, and managing experimentation across all of the levers. So is, is it is it common for, for like a Silicon Valley Silicon Valley type startup these days that is B2C model or B2B model, whatever, to have like a growth hacking team or that kind of a team? Yeah. That's, that's the biggest commonality that I found. It really started with Dropbox and I mean with uh, Facebook in 2008. LinkedIn started about the same year. And, uh, but Airbnb, Pinterest, all of these multi-billion dollar companies really aren't spending much on advertising. They've got these teams that are basically rapidly experimenting on each of the levers of growth. So figuring out how to, how to retain people twice as well is probably more important than figuring out a new channel because it's, it's got leverage where it makes every channel work twice as well. So it's, it's really experimenting all the way through the customer value creation process. And, and across all platforms. I mean, I assume it's different with every platform, but yeah, I mean, there's probably like some levers that are always important. I imagine notifications in an app is right. always or like an email marketing uh, or like a customer relationship management. What, what, I mean, can you like point out some levers that you find important across different platforms that always pop up and that always like uh, have to be managed correctly? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think first and foremost, the as people have become more data oriented, a lot of times they figure they forget about the uh, they forget about the qualitative side. So they forget about actually why do people like the product? And so, so it's, it's the combination of those two things that applies in every business. If someone's going to keep using the product, if they're going to even use it once, it's, they, they have these motivations. So it's, it's understanding kind of what's driving there. The tactics are going to be somewhat different with every business, but you're going to have kind of the same high level uh, collection of, of growth opportunities. So retention as an opportunity Every business, if you can't retain users, you can't grow your user base. You just replace the same set of users each time. So retention is the same. Notifications can be an important part of driving retention in some businesses. In other businesses, notifications aren't going to work. I think in my mind that before notifications, like notifications are a tactic, but before notifications... The, the best driver of retention is a great user experience. And a great user experience is not just based on, like, if, is it a great product? It's also based on, do you do a good job of delivering people to the right user experience in the product? And mm -hmm. that is what a growth team is focused on, is actually, is actually you know, hiding some of the complexity and some of the features and knowing that people who absolutely love the product use it this way, get this benefit. So the, they're setting the right expectation and, and ultimately have that goal of getting them to what, what growth hackers call an aha moment with the product, which is like the, a great example is Facebook's uh, 10 friends in seven days. If you could, they found if they could get a new user, 10 friends in seven days, that that user was much more likely long-term to stick around on the solution. So once you find that type of data that suggests that that's, that's what you need it to get people to, now the marketing team or the growth team, whatever you want to call it, has something to really focus on. And so that it's, it's about not just getting them in the door, but thinking about how do I, how do I get them to get those 
10 friends quickly. So that's where, you know, and LinkedIn has something similar. So that's where inventing ways to be able to find out which of your friends are already on the platform. So just scraping your address book, but giving permission to like, here's, you know, would you like to go through your address book and see who's already using this so you can connect with them is a great way. It creates friends on both sides, just added another friend, which led to more engagement. And I think most traditional marketers aren't, aren't thinking, aren't thinking about that as part of the value creation process and in, in how you actually grow the user base where that's, that's a huge part of growth. In fact, I would say more important than just bringing a new person in the door who doesn't who doesn't end up sticking around because they don't get to the right experience with the product. Um, do you observe what like the, the, the platform that are the hot and coming these days and Uber and, and then Netflix, maybe what they do? I mean, do you watch out and you sort of like analyze what they do just for fun or just could you can't yeah, help so it because you just live and you watch it and you say, yeah. Oh, whoa, that's smart. So what that's one of the things that we do with growthhackers.com is that we write these studies. That, that's, that's the great thing with all of this is that you, You can't market in secret as much as you may want to yeah. keep it a, a secret. It's all public touch points. And so we've analyzed all of the public touch points, plus all of the interviews with people. Sometimes we even talk to other people. So for Uber, we wrote a very long growth study on exactly how Uber oh, is growing. And, and, and in short, what was it like the one or two key levers? The most important thing is, um, according to the head of growth at Uber, is actually defining what their success metric is. And for them... Everything is optimized on increasing rides in, in the system. So it sounds kind of basic, but um, if you think about most marketers would optimize on how many new app installs can I get or how many new drivers can I get? But ultimately, that doesn't create value in the system. Value is what keeps people sticking around. So what creates value for Uber is rides taken. So once that's that's value for both a driver and for a rider. So everything they do is optimized on maximizing the number of rides taken. And then then there's other things like how did they roll out market to market, um, knowing that uh, knowing that if they just kind of went across the whole world at once, it would be a lot harder to get traction. So um, that's that's some of the really creative so, stuff. So, I so it's, it's I mean it sounds so easy, but the key is it's. The right KPI, to find the right KPI. Yeah, and, and what the head of growth at Uber said, I was at an event there not too long ago, and he was formerly at Facebook, and he said that the commonality between Facebook and Uber that he credits the most important thing is just is a single metric, what they call a North Star metric, that everybody is defining growth in that North Star metric as a reflection of value in the business. And that's that's sustainable growth versus versus some kind of metric that's not representing value to the users. Okay. And then everything from there is is correlation. So what what are the levers that have the most impact in accelerating that North Star metric? So you may what in most businesses what I find is that the activation lever is the most important one. So if you can't give that first time user the right experience, then they never become a second time user. And so that's where most marketers fall short again, is that we, we, it's not because we don't know we're supposed to, I think all of us intuitively know that we would like to go deeper in the product and get people deeper in the product. But as marketers, we don't have access to run experiments 
very deep in the funnel. That's product and engineering. And so we do what we can, which is just bring them to the front door. But what that means is that we have much lower allowable acquisition costs because of all this inefficiency that's happening in the steps that are beyond our control. And so I think that was really the big breakthrough that Facebook made, which is they built a team that was cross-functional that managed all of those levers. And what you're seeing now at Uber, they recently changed, you're seeing this pattern happening in a lot of companies. They recently changed where the um, head of growth is now also the head of product because product is really your biggest lever for driving growth in the business. And so the, yeah, this guy who I was referring to is their VP of product and growth. And you're seeing that um, at, at a number of companies. Um, what other company that are you, are you like closely observing? Or could you talk about like as an observer, what's going on? I, oh, I got a note today from the head of growth at, uh, at Airbnb because I, I was really curious how they, I'd, I'd never come across any information on how they were setting up their growth team and, um, Uber's pretty famous for basically having two, two teams. One's focused on riders and one's focused on drivers. And so um, that's how they're maximizing uh, rides taken is as many riders into the system, as many drivers into the system as they can. And then product is, is you know, driving engagement on that. Um, but I'd never seen how, uh, how Airbnb was organized, but they their head of growth today told me that they're organized in a pretty similar way, that they have brand that doesn't focus on uh, guests or hosts, but then they've got basically uh, performance marketing teams and, and other teams that are focused just on increasing the number of, of hosts in the system and another team that's focused on increasing the number of guests in the system. And how, I mean, we're talking about marketplaces here, like mm -hmm. um, purely digital companies with very low like heavy assets mm -hmm. if you want to call it that way um what let's 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 maybe touch on a company that's for instance the casper mattresses mm -hmm. it's a completely different product i mean you have to like get somebody a, a mattress and yeah. then he has to like it and it's really difficult to find out if you like the product because you can't use it like an airbnb or like a game or like right, right. uber like in the first minutes and for like a couple of euros and maybe nothing you find out if you like the product or not right right uh, so so how is it different with the casper or with an e-commerce company of a different type yeah at least casper is is direct to consumer so so at least you have that opportunity to manage the full customer life cycle um again it's It's knowing it, you can get the feedback loop so you can you can still ultimately ask them if they're still using it. You can have a, a like a very flexible return policy, which is a lot of these guys are doing in the mattress space, especially. So you it, I think historically an e-commerce company might say you can't return, but they want you to be able to return so that they get that that feedback loop if it's if. If, if the customer has received this uh, experience that they actually want to stay on there and then knowing that getting the customer to a great experience where they want to stay, when they want to keep using the product, that's what unlocks a lot of the word of mouth. And so basically being able to, that, that just that value focus, I think is, is a huge thing. But interestingly, I think that the more challenging than the e-commerce would be those companies like L'Oreal where they, where they, mostly don't have access or Unilever where they don't have access kind of to the end user. I think that's why Unilever acquired Dollar Shave Club because Dollar Shave Club was really good. So like, for example, if I tried to cancel my Dollar Shave Club subscription, 
They make it very easy to very easy to pause my subscription. It's a lot harder to uh, to cancel it. So they kind of keep me in that system. And then when I ultimately did cancel, they asked me why I was canceling. And I said, the quality of the shave just isn't good enough. And they said, why don't you try our executive razor? We'll let you have it for free for a period of time. And so it, it, it at least got me, you know, that it's managing managing customer retention is is a huge part of those businesses as well. So I think that's why Unilever acquired them for that for that kind of end-to-end uh end-to-end kind of customer creation and value creation process. But interestingly, L'Oreal um was just in the United States uh about a month ago and they had all of their country managers for a week in Los Angeles and San Francisco with the main topic being growth hacking and how how can they apply that in their business? And so I spent uh, a night with them and it's, it's a lot harder, I'll admit, but I think the, um, I, th- I think that the opportunities it's, you know, for, for online marketers, most of us are pretty data driven and there's, I think there's some, some good pieces. So for us, it's kind of going from a, from a, a four in terms of like potential to, to try to get to a 10, uh, you know, a 10 out of 10 to be doing it right. I think for a L'Oreal or for a, you know, a lot of these older companies that they're not using the data feedback loop very well, even on the, even on the customer acquisition side. So I think they can still take a lot of these principles and, uh, and, and get better at the, at the parts of the business that like, they can apply uh, it. How would they do that? I mean, just give us a little hint. I mean, they, they're selling the stuff to a supermarket and then it's sold like oh, without their control. How do they get the feedback loop going? So they can they can apply it to the channel, for example. They can they can essentially they can essentially find out from the but so one they can they can actually launch a, a separate brand that is an end to end brand, and you're seeing some of some companies do that. But even you you know it's just it's, it sounds kind of weird, but the same way that there's rider and driver growth at Uber, you could have channel and uh, and customer growth, and so at least on the channel side trying to work with the channel to get deeper into that feedback loop, but ultimately knowing that, that, that the channel is happy with your product is you know, part of how you, how you retain that channel. Um, I, I, as I explained to them when I, when I met with them, though, is that uh, my expertise is in startups and as, is in this process, and um, I've increasingly done it in bigger digital companies, uh, it's what I said to them is it's important for you guys to try to understand this and see where it applies in the business. But I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in applying it at L'Oreal. So, or or any business like that. But I think what you're seeing is more and more companies that are bit. So Walmart, for example, acquired a company, set up Walmart labs, basically to be the growth team for Walmart. And they're, they're building some interesting apps for, for feedback. So we talk about it in our, in our book, uh, Hacking growth that's that's coming out next month, and the the case study on that is around an app that they created where uh, customers can uh, do price matching, where they take a picture of their receipt, and then uh, and then basically uh, Walmart is able to give them a better deal if 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 they can find it, and so that's that's sort of the benefit for the customer in taking the picture. But they also the customer acquisition team then at Walmart is now using that data to inform how they bid on keywords when they're, when they're competitive on the price, they're going to be more aggressive when they're not as competitive, they're not going to be as aggressive. So it's, to me, I think it's about 
trying to tie trying to tie as much as many pieces of the customer experience to inform the activities that others are doing. So like, for example, being able to find what drives retention in the business, communicate that information back to the acquisition efforts so that you're acquiring people on a promise that reflects why they ultimately end up sticking around. Like the more that the information kind of flows across that full customer experience and the data flows, everybody starts making smarter, better decisions. And it, and it should ultimately be based on decisions that lead more new people to a great experience with the product. Okay. Okay. So the product is your marketing. The pro ultimately value value is you can't grow. If you can't retain retention is a function of great customer value. The product is what drives a lot of that, that great customer value. And so an integrated end to end process of taking someone from consideration mode to actually getting value is becomes a huge advantage in, in driving growth in a business. And I think for most companies, it requires a, some type of reorganization because that value creation process sits in different silos in the organization, especially the bigger the company is, the more likely that these silos don't communicate very well together. And that that's, that's, I think the big breakthrough that these growth teams have had is that they, they're cross-functional. They sit across silos and, and ultimately are based on that customer value creation process. Whoa. Okay. Um, <laughs> any other startups? I mean, I really like the, 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 uh, the Casper example where you, where you, I mean, you just explained to me why they are so liberal and so open with the return policies where they say a hundred days uh, return policy is not a problem because they actually like, want to uh, yeah, invite the customers to use the product. And it also uh, helps them, helps them fix the parts of the system that are causing the customer to not want the product instead of the old traditional direct marketing approach of, we got the sucker to buy it. Let's move on. Like now, now they realize that so much of the growth is not just getting to buy it once, but getting to buy it lots of times and getting at every company that I've been a part of that has been successful. Ultimately organic word of mouth is by far the most powerful growth channel in the business. And that, that is completely a function of having a great experience with the product. And, and that I think is kind of the key is that You, you have to have this end-to-end -end integrated approach to maximize the number of people who have a great experience with the product. Okay, okay. And any other startup example, like the Casper one that, that we can learn from you, that you observed these days in the, somewhere in the market where you find the company, product, I mean, like the tactics so interesting or so that, so that you could share? Um, I, think, I think there's just a lot, a lot of good stuff coming out of... of um, a, a ton of different companies. I, it's, it's really, um, and, and again, the tactics, I think that the, the tactics are, are the last stage. Once you identify where, where is your customer value creation part broken? Like where, where are you losing people in the conversion funnel and, uh, or where, what's the opportunity? I mean, and you can take that all the way out to the channel. So, you know that a lot of your customers spend time on Pinterest and you're not doing anything in Pinterest, then, then that's a missed opportunity. And so you should focus some energy and resources and testing there. But I think it's this, it's basically that another piece that we haven't talked about is that um, a lot of this comes down to a weekly uh, growth meeting that uh, looks a lot like what an agile 
software development team does where it's it's basically executing the scientific process where it's you know you're taking a you're taking your analytics to identify the opportunity you're generating ideas with clear hypotheses of how they will affect that uh, that that opportunity um, and then you're prioritizing which of those ideas get implemented you're trying to run as many tests in a week, but you know, have like a, a set target of tests of maybe four or five tests per week that you're running. And then you've got a team that actually implements those tests or different people that are implementing those tests. You're running the analysis and it's through that testing that you get smarter about what's working. And it's, I think it's that rhythm that these growth teams have where they're every week meeting to process the new learning from last week's test, decide what are the tests of this week, and, and just this continuous motion where, in my experience with marketing teams, it's, it's kind of a little bit more continuous. There's not that sort of gathering where it's a super systematic, super systematic process of, of testing and learning. Okay. Okay. Well, um, <laughs> That's really interesting, and I and I and it really made a lot of things clear to me that I that I observed and I didn't see exactly and didn't see through exactly. Now I see see through them a lot better because I, I know that, like your thinking and the thinking that you bring to some of some I mean, to the industry. I mean, you seem to me like you are one of the the the, the, the guys and multiply the story into a different companies, different startups. And and I see the fruits and the results, but I, sometimes I don't see the thinking. Now I see a little clearer. I think one of the big advantages that I had is that when when a company becomes really big, with online marketing, we've got that feedback loop where we can actually see if it's working or not. But imagine like like a big beer company, for example, they run millions of dollars of advertising. Which advertisement caused that person to go in the convenience store and actually buy that product? It's like the bigger they get, the more the the harder it is to figure out what's exactly working. The benefit that I had was taking so many companies in that very early stage where it's where it's literally like nothing happening and being able to experiment with things where I, I could see the impact because there's just not as much noise and start to really figure out what matters and in which, which order. So clearly, total waste of time to focus on growth if you have no retention because you have no value in the product. So that's like the first thing is, is validating product market fit and then doing all of these high leverage activities ultimately is how you unlock the channels to work for you. Because if you are better at converting than, and monetizing, then you're going to be able to outcompete people in the channels, whether it's being sold on a CPM or a, you know, on a bidding basis for CPC, whatever it is, you your ability to outbid the competition is based on your ability to take someone and effectively convert them into money. And that conversion to money, so much of it happens outside of the control of a marketing team normally that, um, that that's, that's to me the, the key to being able to, to effectively compete in channels. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, I find really interesting. I, mean, I know the German marketing quite a bit. There's not that many people that think like you do. And I think it's really like bringing value to our German marketing industry, online marketing industry, at, at least. Um, there's some there's some groups in Berlin that are doing pretty pretty good, like Sound, SoundCloud, I think, does does it pretty well. Uh, some of the Rocket Internet companies, I think, have, have 
But are they, they are they um, like product focused in the way that you would want them to be product focused? I mean, Zalando is, but I mean, w w I mean, what company do you see in Germany outside of SoundCloud uh, that does that correctly? That is really strong in that. So I mean, interestingly, like Rocket Internet, uh, the the Samwar brothers behind that were investors in uh, Eventbrite. So I had a little interaction with them back like almost 10 years ago now, and. They seem to, to really know it and understand it. And I think that's why they've been so successful is that they that, you know, so much of this having a systematic process of bringing businesses to market and, and expand. It's not to say that they can't improve a lot, but I can tell you that some of the SoundCloud uh, team I've I've learned a lot from. And uh, and so I, I mean, my SoundCloud to me is a company that is definitely product focused. Right. Sure. But um, My observation was that many of the rocket companies, and they, some of them are struggling these days, mm -hmm. it might be because they're really good at the, doing the, the performance marks and the custom acquisition, but the product focus is not as strong. Yeah. As, uh, well, Dropbox. so maybe they're, maybe they're not going as deeply with it that I that I thought they were because, you know, again, it's I mean, they're, they're, they're really strong in SEO and, and, and yeah. knowing where to acquire traffic. That's they're yeah. winning every battle there. But I think that's that's really my big thesis is that 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 no longer is enough because ev everybody's getting very good at using data to to uncover channels that work. And as a result, those channels get saturated so quickly now and stop working in such short period of time that unless you're really good at end to end value creation, you just you're going to lose in the channels. Oh, and so okay. you, we might be seeing that with them that may, they may not have that part as well as I thought they did. I mean, that's that's I think like a Dropbox or. Um, SoundCloud, Airbnb, they're really like product folks. They're mm -hmm. really strong engineering, I, I think, and they really like manage the product well and the the, uh, pro the the user retention. And I think the retention part is what they are better at, and yeah. the, and the acquisition part is what German companies are really good at. That that that's mm -hmm. my current uh, gut feeling. Yeah, and the and the next most successful German companies are going to be the ones who figure out how to drive retention as effectively as they drive marketing. And I think the best news is that the process for doing that is the exact same as the process for uncovering channels. It's it's very test and data driven. You're just applying that process in a place where product teams are not used to doing it. So you got to use that kind of marketing approach, but do it in it you know much deeper in the funnel in product. Whoa. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, whoever wants to follow, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure we have couple of thousand listeners every week many of them want to like go and find you on the web growthhackers.com yeah you have a uh, i'm active on twitter at sean ellis you have a uh, book coming out got my book coming out uh, hacking growth i'm not sure it's uh it's coming out in germany yet so we have amazon we, we do yeah, the job yeah. but we've got we've got a dutch version coming out but i'm, I'm assuming that, that do you have do you have a german publisher yet uh not yet so if there's a german publisher out there jump on it because we've got a Couple in China, Japan. We got like all over the world, but not Germany yet. So um, with, I'm sure there will be a German one coming up. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. And you're speaking tomorrow at our online marketing rocks conference. But by the time people listen to the podcast, that's probably going to be over. And only a few lucky ones, only a couple thousand lucky ones <laughs> will have heard you. Um, so, so I have a lot of my presentations on, on uh, YouTube as well. So uh, and, 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 and maybe there. if you like it here and, and, and I'm sure people like your stuff, maybe you're coming back one day and I'm people hoping. can see you again in Germany. Do that you speak, sometimes speak in Germany? Is that, is that very rarely? Uh, this is, I, I, I was here in October in Berlin uh, for a small workshop, but but uh, I have not. Uh, this will be my first um, on-stage presentation. Perfect, perfect. Yeah. <laughs>
premiering tomorrow on Friday. Um, thank you very much for coming by and yeah, enjoy online market rockstars. All right, thank you. Buzz.